Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, you've got microphones in our faces, and we're listening in. This month, we welcome a very special guest, Reverend Dr. Randall Balmer, an Episcopal priest who also serves as the John Phillips Professor of Religion at Dartmouth College. Dr. Bulmer is the author of more than a dozen books, including Evangelicalism in America, Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, and Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, a journey into the evangelical subculture in America, which is now in its fifth edition and has been produced as an award-winning three-part series for PBS. Reverend Dr. Bulmer is joining us on Freedom Road this month in the midst of a time when many in the white evangelical church are waking up to the fact that something is wrong. Dr. Balmer is here to help us understand where things went off the rails and how they can be put back or even, I don't know, redeemed. <laughs> so we'd love to hear from you about what you think about this topic as well. So please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love the back and forth, so keep it coming. So I was first introduced to Randall Bomber's work while working on my master's in human rights at Columbia University in New York City. I attended a book event for his book, Thy Kingdom Come, which I have to say is like amazing. It's like really awesome, you guys. It's actually like one of my big reference books that I'm always referencing. Bomber, his chronicle of what he witnessed during his own days in the religious right are chronicled in Thy Kingdom Come. I had been an evangelical for 23 years at that point, but I had never heard any of the history of the evangelical movement that Dr. Balmer outlined that night. So I read Thy Kingdom Come cover to cover several times and referenced it in my first book, Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican, dot, 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 or Democrat. And in, in this book, his new book, Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right, Balmer digs in even deeper, where he gestured toward the connection in the past between race and the religious right, Balmer draws a direct straight line in this book, helping us to see clearly the relationship between the rise of the civil rights movement and the rise of the religious right. So, Dr. Balmer, first of all, can I call you Randall? Please do, Lisa. It's good to be with you. <laughs> I really like, have to just establish that right off. Because, I mean, honestly, so y'all, even just for a little disclosure, Dr. Bomer was one of the readers for my own thesis at Red Columbia. <laughs> That's right. That's for right. me, like, he's really literally one of the biggest, and he is actually one of the biggest authorities in the country about this topic. So I'm always, I was trained well by my Black parents who give deference, but at the same time, poor podcasting. Thank you for letting me play. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> we, we are colleagues. <laughs> well, so, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. 
So, okay, so can you share a bit about your own faith story with us? How did you come to faith? Because your own faith story is a, a, a critical part of why you even came to be studying this for your whole life. Yes, it's, it's a great question, and it's always a, a little awkward to t- uh, talk about myself, but I'll be happy to <laughs> give it a shot. In, in terms of my connection with evangelicalism, I would put my credentials as an evangelical up against anybody. So that is to say, I grew up in an evangelical household. My father, for 40 years, was a minister, a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church of America. So I grew up in uh, parsonages, in I guess first in, in Nebraska, and then in rural southern Minnesota, Bay City, Michigan, and then I spent my high school years in Des Moines, Iowa, when my father was pastor of the Westchester Evangelical Free Church. And then I went off in the 1970s to college at Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Like, really like the heart of evangelical. It really is. It really is. People say Wheaton is, but I I put my background against the the Wheaton people (laughs) as well. And then I stayed and actually worked at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the development department and simultaneously did an MA part-time in church history. And that launched me to graduate school. And then a teaching career that I think is now in its fourth decade or probably beginning its fifth decade, wow. <laughs> which gives me some, gives you some idea about how old I am. <laughs> but in terms well, of, of faith, I, it was very important to my parents and certainly to me as well to be born again. And I remember a, a conversation after breakfast out in the farm country of rural southern Minnesota and uh, my parents uh, asking me if I wanted to invite Jesus into my heart. And I believe I was about three years old at the time. You were three? And, and oh I gosh. invited Jesus into my heart, probably the first of many times. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, there's a, a whole narrative in evangelicalism with rededicating one's life to Jesus yes. and so forth. And I've certainly done that many times as well. So, and then in the 1970s, as I suggested a minute ago, I really was hunkered into what I have called the evangelical subculture at at Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois, both as an undergraduate student at Trinity College and then as a uh, master's student at uh, Trinity Divinity School. So this is my world. And I'll stop here in a minute here, Lisa, but uh, you asked how I got into this. I went off to graduate school at, at Princeton in 1980. And uh, really, at that time, I was kind of ready to lay it aside. Not my faith. Uh, my faith has never been an issue in, in, in terms of wanting to follow Jesus. I mean, this is, uh, this is my life. This is uh, my passion. But in terms of kind of the intramural squabbles that had so defined evangelicalism at uh, particularly Trinity Divinity School, I just was, was no longer interested in the questions that they were asking, to be wow. honest. And so wow. I, yeah. I drifted toward colonial history, American colonial history. And that's really where I did my uh, the bulk of my work and my dissertation. Then I was fortunate enough to get a job at, at Columbia University, uh, where they promised me I would never be tenured. Uh, but I took the job anyway, because I didn't have another one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And you do what you got to do, right? <laughs> you do what you got to do. And in the late 80s, I started there in 1985. In the late 80s is when the televangelist scandals began to break. And 
I, I get all, I, I began getting all these phone calls from uh, the networks and, and from various media outlets because I was actually the only person in New York City at that time who was anything close to being an expert on uh, American religious history. And so they asked me, and again, I'm telling you more than you've asked for, but no, I love it. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, I was happy to answer their questions about evangelicalism, which for the media at that time was a new thing. They had no idea what this was about. And so I was happy to answer the questions. But I got tired of the assumption that all evangelicals were the moral equivalent of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And having grown up in that world. I understood differently. I knew that was not the case. And so I devised this crazy idea to write a book that would be a travelogue. I traveled all over the country, visiting various groups of evangelicals at their grassroots, uh, from camp meetings to Bible camps to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, the Indian Reservation in the Dakotas, you know, many, many places. And, and I was trying to show that this was a movement with a great deal of internal diversity, whereas the media sent, seemed to think it was a monolithic kind of movement. And I understood, uh, I knew better than that. And that's what got me redirected in the area of uh, evangelical history, and particularly as it began to emerge, the, the religious right. So you spent your whole life, really, I mean, or at least the last part of your teaching and, and speaking life, helping the world to understand 20th century political evangelicalism. And I guess I'm I have, like, yeah. You really have. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering, why does it matter so much yeah. to all of us and to you? What do we need to know that you know? Well, and, and, and this is what I tried to do in the book, in, in the early sections of the book, is to convey what I learned about my own tradition. That is to say, if you look back into the 19th century in particular, uh, and even back into the 18th century for that matter, but primarily the 19th century, you see that evangelicals, if you were to chart them on a kind of political spectrum by today's standards, they would line up to the left of the political spectrum, and in some cases to the far left of the political spectrum. And that to me was something that I didn't re really realize about my own tradition. I was drawn very much in the 1970s to people like Jim Wallace, who um, Jim and I shared a campus, albeit not for very long, and, and Sojourners, which of course you've had uh, uh, great experience with. And so as I began to learn about my own history, I began to appreciate that the lurch to the right that I was perceiving in my lifetime was very much in, inconsistent with what I consider to be the noble heritage of 19th century evangelicals, political and social activism. Evangelicals in the 19th century were very much concerned about issues like public education. They were in the, on the ground floor of the, what was known at the time as the common school movement. And they understood this as important, particularly for the children of those who were less advantaged, to provide them an education so that they could become upwardly mobile and join the middle class. They were very much concerned about prison reform. The whole idea of a penitentiary begin to, begins to emerge early in the 19th century, a place where somebody who is a deviant can go not merely to be segregated from society, but to become penitent. And, and 
there were programs in place to, to ensure that this would happen. Uh, there were peace crusades in the antebellum period. The abolitionist movement, obviously, in the North we're talking about, uh, evangelicals were very much in the forefront of trying to eliminate the scourge uh, of slavery. And then finally, women's equality. Uh, evangelicals were very much involved in women's equality. So as I began to see what was happening in the late 1970s with people like Phyllis Schlafly and evangelicals gravitating to her Eagle Forum and her opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, I began to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? This represents an utter betrayal of who you are and, and your history. And so you asked me what I want evangelicals to know. I guess that's what I want them to know, is that their own history would suggest a very different political posture from what we're seeing today in the religious right. Now, it really strikes me, in your book, you actually have a whole chapter on the Chicago Declaration. Yes. And yes. I would really love to talk about it, because, especially since you're, you were Chicago-based, right? You were, in, you were at Trinity Divinity School, it, when you were there overlapping with Jim Wallace and Sojourners, which was also right around the same time that the Chicago Declaration came up. And w- were you in the room when that happened? Were you oh, there? I, I so wish I were. <laughs> no, <laughs> you I, came I, along later, right? So, yeah, I was an undergraduate at that time, but I was oh, well, well wow. aware of it. Yeah, I, I knew what was happening. And I should clarify with Jim, you know, Jim and I are, you know, I consider good friends and, and I hope he would agree with that. He and I, I think, just missed each other. If I remember correctly, he left campus in 1972, and I arrived on campus as a freshman in the fall of 1972. So I don't want to get. Oh wow! I, you literally just missed each other. Oh my we just, goodness! We did. I, I, wow. yeah, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to misrepresent uh, that. But so we've connected in later life. But I was very aware of what was happening in Chicago with the Chicago Declaration in the fall of 1973. And I wish very much that I had been there, but I certainly wasn't important <laughs> enough to be invited. <laughs> An undergrad. Who knew? They didn't know they had you there like miles away. So, so tell us, why does it matter? What's up with the Chicago Declaration? I mean, I'm amazed that when you look at who was in the room and also how did it come to be? I mean, I know that it happened a couple of years after the the un, unrolling, unscrolling of the civil rights movement, unraveling of the civil rights movement and um, when Dr. King was assassinated. So what was the impetus of, and what did it say? Well, the real precursor to the Chicago Declaration was a small organization, people called Evangelicals for McGovern. George McGovern, of course, was running against uh, Richard Nixon in 1972 for the presidency. And uh, sadly, George McGovern lost uh, by a landslide to to Richard Nixon, in part because of Billy Graham. But I think we'll probably get back to Billy Graham later. So I'll leave him alone for now. And Ron decided to, and I should let him speak for himself on this, but as I understand it, he decided to build on whatever momentum came out of the Evangelicals for McGovern group the following year, and he convened a group of 55 evangelical leaders, uh, theologians, scholars, activists, at the YMCA on Wabash Street in Chicago uh, over Thanksgiving weekend in 1973. Was that, just very quickly, was that Ron Sider you're referring to? Ron Sider, yes. I'm sorry if I didn't wow. say that. Yes, yes. So Ron Sider convened this group of 50 evangelicals. I didn't realize that he was the convener. And then also, we had Wes Bramberg Michelson on a few months back. And so I know that he was definitely there, and he also was part of that evangelicals from the governed group. Right. 
exactly. Okay, so we have some reference point. Okay. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, Wes and I are actually in good in close contact because I'm uh, in the process or starting uh, writing a biography of Mark Hatfield and West, of course, uh, worked worked for Senator Hatfield. One of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he really was a true hero, especially in this in this faith and politics space. So, what did the declaration say? What was it actually responding to? Well, I think it was responding to, in part, the election of 1972. And I guess we'd probably have to caucus with each of the people who were there to understand why he or she was there in the first place. But more broadly, the Chicago Declaration of 1973 represented a restatement and a reclaiming of the social ethic that characterized 19th century evangelicals, which I, I outlined here a, a couple of minutes ago. And it's quite a remarkable document because it, it bemoans the persistence of racism in American society. It talks about the scandal of this widening economic divide between the affluent and everybody else. It talks about the scandal of hunger in a, an affluent society such as ours. And then at the behest of one of my professors at Trinity College, Nancy Hardesty, professor of English, the Chicago Declaration included a restatement of evangelicalism's longstanding commitment to women's equality. And wow. this was uh, really quite remarkable in the early 1970s. And I, I, I applaud Nancy for pushing for this. She was in a room that was overwhelmingly male, I assure you, <laughs> but she was able to make the case and she did so. And this was the affirmation that came out, one of the affirmations that came out of the Chicago Declaration in 1973. What's so deep is that that happened over Thanksgiving in 1973. That's the same year that Roe v. Wade was decided. It is. And abortion was not part of the conversation. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> so wait a minute. Abortion was not part of the conversation when you got 50 evangelicals in a room the year that Roe v. Wade passed? 55. I never, I never put two and two together before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're going to come back to the abortion piece, y'all. Okay, so we're just setting this up, y'all. I'm sure you understand what we're doing here. This is obviously we're going to have a really good conversation. So these are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Talk to us about Paul Weirich, because he really is, he, he seems to rise as like the critical character that changed everything within white evangelicalism, am I right? I think he is. I sometimes call him the evil genius behind the religious right. Paul Weyrich was a, a longtime conservative ac activist, that is, a politically conservative activist. And uh, he came from Wisconsin. He was the, one of the founders of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. And he was something of a visionary in that he understood the potential of mobilizing evangelical voters. And here I should probably pause to point out that in the middle decades of the 20th century, white evangelicals were not politically organized, not politically mobilized. Now, yes, you had a, uh, some fringe characters who were out there yelling <laughs> from the margin. <laughs> 
people like fight, Fighting Bob Schuler out of Los Angeles, Bob Jones, you would probably put into that category. Carl McIntyre would probably be in that category. And most of the rhetoric was rhetoric was uh, focused on anti-communism, uh, which was, of course, a big issue in the, in the Cold War era and understandable for that reason. So Weirich understood that this was a vast, untapped resource, that is to say, white evangelicals. And he told me, uh, we had a conversation, and I'm happy to talk more about that in a moment, but he told me that he had been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get evangelicals interested in politics. And he said, and again, I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm quoting what he had to say. He said, I tried everything to get them interested. He said, I tried the school prayer issue, which was a, a big issue in the early 1960s. I tried the equal rights, women's equality issue. I thought maybe that would get their interest. That didn't work. I tried the pornography issue. That didn't work. I tried abortion. That didn't get any uh, attention whatsoever. None of these issues worked until the mid-1970s. And, and that is to say, this is all in the context of debunking what I call the abortion myth. That is the uh, fiction that abortion was the catalyst for the uh, rise of the religious right. Mm -hmm. So it is a fiction. And I'll tell you, I know that because I've read your books <laughs> and also read your articles. You did an incredible article in Politico a few years back that really began um, to dig into this. And, I, and in your book, Bad Faith, you go, you basically lay it all out in one place, which I love. But so can you share with us, what is the relationship between Roe v. Wade and the religious right? And race, because I mean, race is a part of this and you intimated to that. The way that I've been talking about it is that there's a relationship between Brown v. Board and Roe v. Yep. Wade. Oh, sure. So, so, so share with us, what is that? Yeah, the, the relationship between Roe v. Wade and the religious right is a distant one. Let me, let me just put it that way. And, and this is one of the reasons I got into this question and began and, and ultimately wrote this book, uh, Bad Faith, is that. I had been hearing from the leaders of the religious right now for decades that what got them interested in politics was the Roe v. Wade decision of January 22nd, 1973. Jerry Falwell, in one of his books, talks about his consternation reading the Lynchburg News the morning after the Roe v. Wade decision and just uh, feeling so awful for these poor, helpless children and so forth. And I'm not trying to to, to minimize uh, his sentiment on abortion or or anyone else's for that matter, because it's a complex issue. I, I don't have uh, any qualms about saying that. But he wrote that 14 years after Roe v. Wade was issued, uh, before the decision was handed down. So I began looking into this and what I found was, first of all, in 1968, Christianity Today magazine and another evangelical organization called the Christian Medical Society conducted a conference with 20-some evangelical theologians. I mean, these are the heavyweight, you know, the heavyweight boxers of the evangelical yeah. theological world to discuss the morality of abortion. They met over several days. And at the end of the meeting, they issued a statement saying, eh, we really can't agree on whether or not abortion should be considered immoral, but we're inclined to think it should be legal. 
two successive editors of Christianity Today magazine, Carl F.H. Henry and Harold Linzel, issued similar equivocal statements about the morality of abortion. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly known as a readout of liberalism, passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion. A oh, resol- my God. I'm resol- sorry. <laughs> what? A resol- you didn't even wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My, my mind is literally like, um, a little blown. And I knew, I know about this and actually several other declarations that they put forward, but I didn't realize it's not just that they said this is a good ruling. They actually called for the legalization. They did. Oh, two, my gosh. Two what? years before Roe v. Wade. And two they re- reaffirmed that sentiment that is calling for the legalization of abortion in 1974 and again in 1976. This is after the Roe v. Wade ruling. When the ruling was handed down, one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, issued a statement praising the Roe v. Wade decision. So this is why I'll keep. I can, I can go f- forever on this, but I'll, I'll do one, one more. Bit I'm of tempted to let you go forever because this is like <laughs> seriously amazing. We might have to have you back specifically to talk about abortion. Okay, Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. Even James Dobson issued a statement that suggested that the moral discussion around abortion uh, should consider the fact that a fetus was not a fully human being. This is... Uh, James Dobson? James Dobson, that yes. out? Yes, oh, yeah, James oh Dobson. Oh my gosh! So anyway, I call this the abortion myth. The abortion myth is the fiction that the religious right galvanized as a political movement in opposition to the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. It is simply not the case. It's not true. So just so you, just for, for some listeners who may not be um, aware, James Dobson was the founder, I believe, right, of Focus on the Family. Yes, he And was. Focus on the Family, until the early 2000s, was really in many ways the leader or a major leader of the religious right. And they galvanized more than anything else around the issue of abortion. So the fact that he put out a statement saying that this is not, you can't determine based on scripture, is that basically it? Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have the quote in front of me. Uh, Mm -hmm. The book just came out as we're doing this recording, and I actually gave my copy to my brother. I, I only have uh, that. I only had that one copy. I'd be otherwise. I'd be happy to read the quote directly. But is it? Well, I have it in front of me. So where exactly? Well, is uh, it? look at look in the uh, index uh, for Dobson, and you'll find oh, the okay. quote. Okay. <laughs> All right. So keep going. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, so I, I call this the abortion myth, and this is the fiction. And it's despite the fact that it's been repeated probably a million times, or at least hundreds of thousands of times, it's still fiction. (laughs) The fact that it's been repeated all that time, uh, all those times, doesn't make it any less false. It is false to say that the religious right got going in opposition to abortion. And that leads to your next question, which I will anticipate. What got them interested in politics? That's literally what was my next question. So what happened? (laughs) What happened? 
And this is, a, to me, this is just, as somebody who's identified as an evangelical who grew up in that world, this is, this is to me, heartbreaking. What got the leaders of this movement together was a court ruling, but it was not Roe v. Wade in 1973. It actually goes back to 1971. And arguably, as you suggested earlier, Lisa, it goes back to 1954, May 17, 1954, the Brown v. Board of Education ruling that called for the desegregation of public education with all deliberate speed, to use the language of the Supreme Court. That was followed up four years later by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, signed by Linda Johnson on July 2nd. And that leads in turn to a court case, but it's not the Supreme Court, it's the District Court for the District of Columbia, which handed down a decision on June 30th, 1971, in the case called Green v. Connolly. Now, let me go back and set the stage for Green v. Connolly. In many places in the South, as public schools began to be desegregated, many white parents sent their children to segregation academies, most of them organized by evangelical congregations. And in particular, in this case, in Holmes County, Mississippi, the first year of desegregation, the number of white students in the public schools dropped from over 700 to 28. Yeah, I read that in your book and I was like, what? The second year it dropped to zero. And at the same time, three of these segregation academies were applying to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status. And a group of parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, said, wait a minute, this isn't right. And so they filed suit. It was joined with another suit. There's a long kind of judicial history here that uh, I, I won't get into. But it finally reaches the District Court for the District of Columbia, and on June 30th, 1971, the district court declared that any institution, according to both the Brown ruling, but also the Civil Rights Act of 1964, any institution that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution. Therefore, it has no claims on tax-exempt status. And that, as that, and again, I'm compressing the narrative here just uh, in the interest of, of time, but as that begins to be enforced by the Internal Revenue Service over the course of the 1970s, that got the attention of religious people who became leaders of the religious right, people like Jerry Fowler, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, That's Virginia. Right. And they Liberty, right? Oh, uh, no, at that time, that one was called Lynchburg Christian Academy, founded in, in 1967. Did that eventually become Liberty University? Well, um, not directly. I, I think it's still, as far as I know, it's still in, a, in existence. It may have changed its name, but... Uh, wow. And I think okay. it's, it probably now is desegregated. I shouldn't speculate because I don't know that for sure, but it was at that time in the 1970s. And this is, as the IRS starts going after these segregation academies and Bob Jones University, I'll come back to Bob Jones in a moment. This is when Jerry Falwell says... Famously, in some states, it's easier to open a massage parlor than it is a Christian school. <laughs> the whole kerfuffle over 
tax exemption for racially segregated institutions is what provided the catalyst for the religious right. And by the way, I have this directly from Paul Weirich, the guy who was there. Uh, he was the he's the architect of this movement, and I'm happy to go further into that story as well. But I, I expect we're running against some time limitations here. So it's it had nothing to do with abortion. Abortion was cobbled into the agenda of the religious right very late in the 1970s, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. And even as late as August of 1980. The Reagan-Bush campaign did not mention abortion in uh, a rally of nearly 20,000 evangelicals in Dallas, Texas on August 22nd. Oh, my God. Wow. It's just like seriously like mind-blowing. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It really is. Can I ask you this? Because the thing that always really, it still strikes me when I think about this history is what I, I came to faith in 1983. And 1983 was in many ways, I think wasn't it the year that the moral majority was born? It was a big year in the religious right where everybody got institutionalized and had been growing up to that point and now was institutionalized. And that was also an election year. So it was going into, it was the fall of my, literally, I, I became a Christian. I walked down the aisle. August 21st, around 8.30 p.m. at a Sunday <laughs> evening camp church meeting in Cape nice. Managers. That's right. And very soon after that, was at church and had a flyer, you know, one of those tracks put in my hand. And I was told that Mondale, well, no, it could have been Mondale. Mondale was the Antichrist. No more. <laughs> and if he, if he won, then everybody, all the children would be rounded up and put in work camps. Like That was literally what I was told, right? And I was told in order to be Christian, you have to vote Republican. This was back in 1983-84. So the thing I never heard, and I did hear the thing about government, you know, but nobody ever connected it to race, to me. Right. <laughs> a little black girl in a small no. white school, right? There's nobody, a surprise. <laughs> right, right. But so it took me two decades to figure that out, or maybe even three decades to figure that out. But I don't think that a lot of people, even a lot of white people really know that it was originally race that organized evangelicals into the political realm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is the lineage? Can you trace the lineage of the Southern segregationist movement to the religious right? Oh, boy. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the the short answer would be Jerry Falwell. Uh, Now, I have to say that Jerry Falwell later in his life did uh, repent of the racism that he propagated uh, and spewed. He used to call the civil rights movement civil wrongs and so forth. To his credit, and I, I don't want to deny him this credit, he did eventually repent of that. But he would be one of the connector pieces between that. There's no question about that. But on the race issue, and, and I'm not trying to avoid your, your question here, Lisa, but let me just try to hit it from another angle. I have to say that for much of my career, I have defended evangelicals against the charge of racism. Wow. Well, I, you know what? I noticed you didn't really draw the direct line. You hinted, but didn't really yeah. draw a direct line. Before. Well, and I think for me, the 2016 election finally woke me up on that, I have to say. And I, I and so I, I don't make these charges lightly uh, because this is the tradition that formed me and made me who I am. 
it's part of my DNA. And so it's not easy for me to say this, but after the 2016 election, I can no longer deny the connection between the two. And now I have to say, I see it more clearly. Uh, so what happened, I, I think that, uh, by the way, in terms of the direction of this political movement, as well as the direction of the nation, I think really goes back not to 2016, but to 1980. 1980 is the pivotal moment, I think. And here you have the election that pits Jimmy Carter, a born-again evangelical Christian, progressive evangelical. By the way, uh, he, uh, he gave me permission to use that term to describe him. Mm. <laughs> he was happy to embrace that term what, that, in one of my interviews when I was writing the biography. Jimmy Carter, born-again Christian, Sunday school teacher, Southern Baptist, running against Ronald Lake Reagan in 1980. And for evangelicals to abandon one of their own, in favor of Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, as governor of California in 1967, had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country. That, it, it doesn't quite fit on the face of it. And so, actually, in this book, I made a, a better connection, at least for myself, and I hope I was able to articulate that to, to the readers, a better connection between the religious right and Reagan. Why would they choose Reagan? Now, here you have a movement, again, on the face of it, with the abortion issue, but also the fact that he was divorced and remarried. At that time, that was a huge issue for evangelicals. It was a big uh, deal. I remember my uh, talking to my mother in the mid-60s. I was always a political junkie. And I asked her why we, meaning them, I suppose, my parents, uh, were not supporting Nelson Rockefeller uh, in his bid for president in the 1960s. And she, I remember her face just got ashen. And she said, oh, we could never vote for somebody who was divorced, let alone divorced and remarried. I mean, it was just, just out of the question. By 1980, with Reagan, hey, no problem. They embraced Reagan. But if you understand, as I have come to understand, that the roots of the religious right lie in racism, the defense of racial segregation in evangelical institutions, segregation academies, also Bob Jones University. We haven't talked much about Bob Jones, but we can do that later, I suppose. Why Reagan? Well, again, I did a good bit more research on Reagan than I had. I have to say to my, my shame, I hadn't done this before. Reagan popped onto the political scene in California by opposing the Rumford Fair Housing Act in 1964 which was aimed at ensuring that people of color had equal access to housing, both rental housing and purchasing. He explicitly opposed both the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He comes, in, throughout his, his career, uh, he was always talking about law and order, which is, Elisa, is this code language for black people, African-Americans. Right. exactly right. He, his, he repeatedly trotted out his vile characterization of welfare queens, women of color who are living good life off of the public dole. He was never able to produce one of these welfare queens, but he nevertheless use that. Yeah, that was, those were constants in his political campaigns. And for me, the most damning moment was August 3rd, 1980. Ronald Reagan opened his general election campaign in, of all places, yeah. Philadelphia, 
Mississippi, where 16 years earlier, the Ku Klux Klan had abducted, tortured, and murdered three civil rights workers. And lest anyone miss his intentions, Reagan, of course, was the master of symbolism. He understood that very well. In that address, address at the Neshoba County Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, he affirmed his commitment to, quote, states' rights, which, of course, was the segregationist rallying cry forever, uh, made famous by George Wallace, the governor of, of, of Alabama. But it, so, was, but it also harkened back to the Civil War. Right. Sure, sure. I mean, it, yeah. that's what that's yeah, right. to, to the this war between day, the states. <laughs> right. The southern states to this day, many of them, not Mississippi, by the way. Mississippi is very clear. We did this because of slavery. But like Virginia, it's it's the state's rights, right? Like right. the right of the state to have their own economic economic system. Hello. So he was hearkening back to George Wallace and slavery. Absolutely. The Confederacy. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So that makes for, for me, and, and this is one of the things that, that you know sets this book apart from some of the things I've written in the past, is that uh, I, I think the connection between the religious right and Reagan through that third R, racism, is is, is pretty clear. And, and I, frankly, I hadn't seen that quite so clearly before writing the book. Wow. Wow. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. Randall, what is the religious rights endgame? I mean, we have seen them more, a million times, it feels like, and especially just in the last 20 years. I mean, I think, I mean, literally tracing it back just as long as I've been aware, and I haven't been aware that long, but since 2005, going into the 2006 election season, that's when we saw, like, Ted Haggard went down because of the sexual promiscuity piece, and he had already been, like, uh, ironically, somebody who was bashing gays and then turned up that, you know, he was having a, a gay affair. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there were others like that that just started to fall and fall. And, and it felt, oh, wow, like the religious right is going down. Like we can have a new era of being able to breathe and have a, have a 
have a faith that is not actually tainted by this segregation of dealio, like thing. And yet they morphed again. And now we see in the ninth, in the 2020 election and the, in this January 6th insurrection, we see them rising in a whole nother way. So I guess my question is, I mean, since the religious right and especially those who are explicitly racist were on the front lines in January 6th, and I hear whispers of whispers within mainline white evangelical discipleship spaces, conference spaces, conference leaders who actually believe a lot of the, the rhetoric that you're finding right now within those January 6th spaces. What's happening with the religious right now and what is their ending? It's hard for me to figure it out, Lisa. You're probably closer to this stuff than I am. But I have to say that it's just, I find it enormously distressing to see people like, well, I mean, Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham, just the headlong embrace of Donald Trump. And this is a movement that has claimed to be all about family values. Well, I'm sorry, you cannot make that case and pull the lever for Donald Trump. You just cannot. And it's, just, yes. it, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's more than that. I mean, it's a sacrilege, I think, in my judgment. This is just, I find this personally so distressing to see these people moving in that direction, including members of my own family after, are part of this. And, and it's just so sad to me. They bought into this whole, you know, I want to say fake news. The, the, the brilliance of Donald Trump is that he's turned the, the term fake news in the wrong direction. Exactly. And uh, it's been widely accepted uh, as such. But there's this whole alternate universe out there that I suspect is being pushed and propagated by Fox News and these other outlets, although I don't watch them enough to know that for sure. But I expect that's what's happening. And there's just a... Uh, an utter disconnection from truth. Let's remember, this is a president who in one term, one four-year term, according to independent sources, issued, I believe the number was 30,557 false or misleading statements. I mean, it's, and wait a minute, we come from a tradition where we believe in the imperative of not bearing false witness. And yet, exactly. these people are supporting somebody who bears false... I mean, everybody can misspeak. I understand that. Just by way of comparison, by the way, that same source tallied in Barack Obama's eight years as president, 28 false or misleading statements just oh to give my gosh a bit, a bit of a comparison what? 28 20 to 30,500 500 and change yes and change <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Wow. So, i mean i'm sputtering here and trying to answer your question lisa because i don't know i, I it's I, I find it so so beyond the, the realm of, of reason or even analysis to understand what's happening. But what I, I do just, know is oh, that my tradition, this is my, these are my people, this is my life, has, has veered in, in, in not only in the wrong direction, but I think in a very dangerous direction. I mean, literally, when you have religious symbols, and in particular the cross, yes. being raised right. at an insurrection rally that then kills six people. And I mean, literally, we, have, we can't forget that. Six people died on that day. 
at this rally, people quote the Bible. They literally stand up and they, they issue prayers. So you have the artifacts, the icons of, of Christianity that are raised in this space. And you have people who are the leaders of Christian discipleship spaces being silent or behind closed doors whispering that they understand, they agree, or putting forward this false equivalency thing that we have seen forever, like since at least since the civil rights movement, the the false of well, you know, there's good people on both sides thing, right? Like I guess my question it really, I think, here's the thing, and maybe let me just ask you this. Part of what woke you up, because we're talking about not history here, we're, we're like, when, you, when you experienced the presidential election of 2016 and the results of it, the 81%, which is now an iconic number, that 81% of evangelicals supported the, the presidency and voted for the presidency of, of uh, Donald Trump. When you saw that, not in historical time, but in real time, you didn't say, oh, who are those people who are doing that, right? You didn't say, oh, something has changed, but suddenly you were able to see what you weren't able to see before about the past. So what was it there? Well, I think it is uh, the understanding that racism lies at the heart of this this movement. And again, this is something that I I, I resisted for a long time. I came to that conclusion uh, unwillingly because I didn't want to I didn't want to acknowledge that. In part because if you go to mega churches, you find there there is arguably more integration there than you find in mainline Protestant congregations. That's actually and, really true. But you know what? I think that's because evangelicals have actually had, they've had in more, more than in mainline spaces, they've had more prophets that have been speaking into those spaces about race than than you'll find in either Catholic or mainline spaces. In other words, people like John Perkins, people like Elward Ellis and Carl Ellis, and I mean, just Dennis Alton McNeil. I mean, you can just really go down the line. You have so many people and you have the failed, but yet still happened. Promise Keepers movement of the 1990s that had thousands, I mean, really millions of, of evangelical men at least told they need to get a black friend. <laughs> you know? Yes, exactly. So they had a category for it, which that never, none of that ever happened within the mainline spaces. Yeah, I think that's probably right. That's right. And you actually, Lisa, are teasing my next book, which is a book about sports and religion, but we'll, that's another Ooh. conversation. <laughs> yes. We'll have to have you back for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's so it, the, this connection with race, I think is, again, I, I tried to resist it, but I, I think after 2016, you can't. I mean, I don't think I need to make the case that uh, Donald Trump himself, again, the charge that somebody is racist is pretty, pretty serious, but I think the evidence at least points in that direction with a lot of these statements. So we've said that the religious, there is a direct line from the religious right of the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s to those who were standing on the Capitol, like standing at, you know, at the Capitol building on January 6th there. It's the same movement. It's the same. It's not all the same people, but it's, it, they're, they're all in the same family. Let's put it that way. But what is the difference? Like what has shifted? since that time to what we have now? 
I, I think to, just to uh, elaborate on what you were saying, it's like a Venn diagram. So there is there's an overlap in those circles. I think it's become a little bit more explicit, frankly. And I think maybe Donald Trump and his rhetoric has made that acceptable, made that permissible. And so if you are politically supporting with somebody who is using this sort of rhetoric, well, you, you're in bed with him in, in, in many respects. And it's pretty hard to extricate yourself from that. Now, I, and I try to make clear in the book, am I saying that everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist or that all, all white evangelicals are racist? No, I'm not. I do not, honestly do not believe that is the case. But I also think it's important to recognize that they're taking part in a movement that has very compromised origins. And the analysis I use in the book or the analogy I use in the book, you can have this wonderful building with all sorts of architectural niceties and filigree and statues or gargoyles or whatever it might be. But if the foundation is on is resting on rotten timbers, then the entire structure, I think, is compromised. And I think it's time for for evangelicals, particularly those who are associated with the religious right, to acknowledge it, to acknowledge that racism lies at the core of this movement. And the historical record is very clear about that. And I hope I've made that clear in the book, because I, I think the case is pretty persuasive. You absolutely do. And, and the thing I love about Bad Faith is that it's so readable. I mean, the chapters are actually, they're quick. They're a very quick read. This is not like one of those like academic treatise kind of books. <laughs> but it is incredibly well-researched, and it's actually, I mean, obviously a lifetime of research that has gone into it. And yet, at the same time, it's, I love the fact that it feels like it's a book for the every person. Like it it's is. a book for the, you know what I mean? To help everybody get it. Yeah. I hope that happens. And I hope evangelicals read it, because I, I want them to understand the, their own past. I think that's important. Yeah. Amen. So, Randall, you became a priest. Did you were a priest, I don't think, when I knew you back at Columbia. Is that right? When did uh, that happen? Uh, 2006, I, I was ordained, yes. Oh, wow. So, so, you yeah. were ordained the, the year that I graduated from Columbia. Yeah, okay. I guess that's right. <laughs> oh, I guess wow. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it was so, a late in life uh, thing, yes. Right. What, do you mind me asking, what was the impetus? Well, I actually was introduced to the Episcopal Church when I was in graduate school, and I remember going into Trinity Church, which is just a couple of blocks from where I was living in graduate school, and uh, I felt like I'd come home. There's a longer story to it, but yeah, that's what brought me there. And I have two sort of semi-flippant answers when people ask me how somebody grew up as a fundamentalist became an Episcopal priest. The first is that it was reaction to the aesthetic deprivation of my childhood. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> the second is that I grew tired of the cult of novelty. And one of the characteristics of a lot of evangelicals, particularly in the mega churches now, is, you know, let's try something new. And I want to say, no, let's try something old. Oh, <laughs> wow. As a historian, I love the connectedness to generations that have gone on before. I The, the Book of Common Prayer just, it speaks to me. It's just, it's the, the prayers, I think, are extraordinary. And they're not extemporaneous. There is somebody's thought about what's being prayed. And I love it. And so I, I actually had two uh, I've had two different parishes where I was a uh, rector, and oh. now I'm I'm doing mainly supply work, but I'm busy, busy pretty much every Sunday. That is so awesome! Wow, it's so yeah. cool to know you as a pastor too, right? <laughs> like, not only not only this incredible academic and 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 thinker, 
No, so I so as a thinker and a pastor, I want to draw on both of those sides of your brain and heart and ask you, how do we save the church? How do we serve? And in particular, yeah. do we save the evangelical church or do we let it go? You know what I mean? Do we let it go the direction it's going? And that basically is its judgment. Boy, Lisa, that's a great question. And I have to say, I vacillate on that. Uh, there are, are days where I say it's just hopeless. It's too late. Uh, it's too far gone. And that's the ultimate salvation for it, to say, listen, this is a tradition that had its uh, moments of glory over the past several centuries, but the time is is up, and, and maybe that's the way to, to approach it. There are other times when, particularly after I read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in the New Testament, wow, yeah. after his body had begun to stink, I say, if Jesus can do that, Jesus can redeem evangelicalism as well. And I have to allow for that possibility. Realistically, I think there's something to be said for repentance. I mean, that's certainly a Christian <laughs> concept. And also, I think that, yeah, and I say this more as a student of American religious history, I think that Religion always functions best from the margins of society and not in the councils of power. Mm. That is to say, once you begin to hanker after power and influence, I think almost inevitably you lose your prophetic voice. Wow. A, pro- a prophet always speaks from the margins. If you look at the Hebrew prophets, I mean, they were not exactly, they weren't holding positions of power or authority. They were speaking from the margins. And I think evangelicalism has to do that uh, again. Now, I think people like you and Jim Wallace, who mentioned earlier, Ron Sider, uh, Tony Campolo, Shane Claiborne, there's a fairly substantial list. I think you folks are doing that. And I wish. You were heard more broadly, but you, don't, <laughs> but you don't have a media empire behind you the way Jerry Falwell did or Franklin Graham can command, for example. And I think that's that has repercussions for the reach of the message. But and I don't need to encourage you to do this because you're doing a, a fine job. But I think it's important to keep your prophetic voice and to understand that. Speaking from the margins has a place, and it's the way of faithfulness. I mean, Jesus was hardly a figure of power and authority in the first century, and I think we need to keep that in mind. How do we save the nation? I think prayer is a big part of it. I I don't know. I, I think what really distresses me is that there's such a stream of misinformation out there that I think is really toxic. And the most recent is maybe the worst of all, and that is the big lie about the election yeah. of, of 2020. I mean, that's huge. That's huge, particularly in a society that calls itself a democratic society. If you fail to acknowledge the will of the people, whatever that is, and believe me, over the course of my lifetime, there were many times where I wasn't happy <laughs> about how the will of the people shook out in the political realm. But uh, you have to acknowledge it, I think. And to simply ignore it and and to pretend that 
uh, it was something other than it was is uh, it puts us on a very bad course, it seems to me. And I, I'm trying not to overstate this, but I think uh, I'm understating it's really bad. So how do we come back from that? Uh, I, I guess the best I can say is that these voices coming from the wilderness, these voices on the margins have to keep speaking. And we ultimately have to leave it in God's hands because at, at the moment, there seems like there's not much we can do about it. And it makes me sad to say that, but it, it's a very serious situation, it seems to me. It is very serious. I mean, the thing that really, two things strike me. One is that on January 6th, and not just January 6th, but right now, with the Supreme Court having backed up Texas and its uh, voter suppression efforts, we literally are losing our democracy. We're actually losing it. It is literally slipping through our fingers right now. And that is scary. And that's largely based on the, the power of those lies, the big lie, and the lies that those 30,500 and change lies that were told over the course of the last five years by the former president, that we really are in a dire place. And so the fact that truth or fake news lies are at the heart of what's making us unsafe, that hits me because one of the things that I've been really thinking about a lot lately is the power of truth telling. So I love Right. Like, I, I, first of all, you're a historian. Your job is to tell the truth yeah. about what happened. Yeah. Right. And to find the truth about what happened. <laughs> that's, that's a longer process. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right. Isn't that, that's your job. And so, I mean, historians and maybe even journalists, because journalists are the first, they get the first crack at history at figuring out what happened and telling the story. Yes. Are some of the most important people in our nation right now, besides those prophets that are speaking the spiritual truths and also making the connections from the margins, the historians like yourself and also journalists are some of the most important voices right now to save our nation. Right. And, and it's not even just about right now, but it's about the past. So I, that's why I just so, uh, just so, so, so appreciate your work, Randall Bomber, because the work you have done, along with, with I mean, Cadre now, other people who have taken it up as well, is really offering people in the evangelical church, white, black, you know, brown, um, purple, the ability to see more clearly, to see truth. So they can choose truth and maybe even choose healing and redemption as a result. May it be so. May it be so. The conversation leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. And we promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Now join the conversation on Freedom Road.